What's up, y'all? It's Rodney. And Sydney. We're doing something a little different today and sharing a dope episode from another podcast we love, Broken Record. On Broken Record, acclaimed producer Rick Rubin, best-selling author Malcolm Gladwell, former New York Times editor Bruce Hedlum, and producer Justin Richmond talk with the musicians you love about their lives, inspiration, and craft. Rick Rubin's talked to some superstars over the years, from Andre 3000 to Tyler the Creator. And since this season of Louder Than a Riot is about uplifting the rule breakers in rap who refuse to put up with the culture's massage noir, we thought it'd be fitting to share an episode featuring one of the most innovative artists of our time, Missy Elliott. If you follow Missy's career from her early producing days until now, like we have, you already know she's maintained that same level of playful creativity she harnessed more than 25 years ago on her debut album, Super Duper Fly. And in this episode, you're about to hear Missy tell Rick Rubin about her wide-reaching influence and creative process. All right, let's get into it. We hope you enjoy it as much as we did. And you can listen to more episodes of Broken Record from Pushkin Industries wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, y'all. Today we have one of the great innovators in popular music ever on the show. And I don't say that lightly. Missy Misdemeanor Elliott. This year is the 25th anniversary of Missy's certified classic debut album, Super Duper Fly. When that album first dropped, Missy's unconventional rhyme scheme and unique flavor, paired with her childhood friend Timbaland's futuristic production, set a precedent for what was creatively possible in hip-hop. And throughout her career, Missy's maintained that level of playful creativity. You can hear it on her slew of radio hits like Get Your Freak On, Work It, Lose Control, and definitely on her album cuts. As of this year, Missy has more platinum albums than any other female rapper. Of course, Missy can also flex as a producer and songwriter. She's the first female rapper to be inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame, having written songs from Mariah Carey, Beyonce, Destiny's Child, and of course, Aaliyah's biggest hits. One in a Million, and If Your Girl Only Knew. Today, Rick Rubin talks to Missy Elliott about her wide-reaching influence and creative process. She explains what it was like writing for Aaliyah, who was one of the first artists to embrace Missy and Timbaland's unique style. She also talks about why she and Timbaland made a pact not to listen to any other music while recording her debut. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Rick Rubin and Missy Elliott. Hello, hello. What up, Legend? <laughs> hello. What have you been listening to these days? To be honest, nothing. <laughs> really? Do you do you not listen to music regularly? Well, you know, I, it's it's weird because I do listen to a lot of lot of music, but a lot of it I catch it. When I catch it, especially when I'm starting to work on stuff, I go into this place of not listening to anything. And that's how mm-hmm. I, you know, pretty much started when I first started me and Tim, just like not listening. You know, we were forbidden to listen to other people's stuff or watch videos. And I think in a crazy way that ended up working in our favor because we didn't see nor hear. So we ended up creating a sound 
that we didn't know we were creating. We just didn't know what was hot. So we didn't know what was hot to mimic it. Great. And I think that always works because then it allows you to not be so afraid to try something new because you don't know what's hot out there to know if yours is too far or not enough. What about listening to classics? Yeah, no, I I know people get in my car and feel like they in the 80s and the 90s because I'm going to always play those joints. Like those classics, the timeless records will always stay in my car. I know my little cousins hate it. <laughs> I know they, <laughs> they hate it. They be like, don't you got... Don't you got the TikTok? Those are nah, but listen to this. Listen to this 112 record. <laughs> it's just something about it that that uh warms my heart for whatever reason. What was the music playing in your house when you were growing up? Was there music in your house when you were growing up? Oh yeah. So the funny thing about when I was growing up, my mother was into gospel. And my father was into uh, R&B, which, you know, in the gospel world, they say worldly music. So I had the best of both worlds because I had my mother playing gospel records. And and then, you know, my father would be playing Marvin Gaye, <laughs> Prince, Michael. Then he would go to Minute Work. I remember Whip It, you know, Grace Jones, whatever. Like he is. So it was gospel on one side and R&B on the other side. Did your parents listen to each other's music? Did your dad like the gospel and did your mom like the R&B? No, absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) That's probably why they didn't stay together. (laughs) I see. No, my mother was really in the gospel and I would be in my room and I'm the only child. So, you know, they would turn the music up on both ends. And uh, when you come from a gospel world, you know, hearing R&B and especially Marvin Gaye's sexual healing is like, what? You know, my mama was not having it. And my father didn't want to hear the gospel either. So they it was like a, a DJ contest that I, you know, <laughs> for whatever reason, it felt like that. Do you feel like you were more influenced by hearing the R&B or the gospel? I was influenced by both. I think I learned harmonies by listening to the gospel. I think I, I learned feeling by listening to the gospel. Something about gospel music just has a conviction when you hear the singers. The R&B side, there was a sauce <laughs> that mm-hmm. that I learned from that. And lyrical content, love, you know, heartache, uh, what's going on in the world. And so I, I think I, I, I um, had the best of, of both. I, matter of fact, I know I did. Amazing. In in a weird way, I it, being in the middle in the in my room, hearing both sides, I was absorbing both like a sponge. At the time, did you like them both? When you were a kid, do you remember liking them both? As a kid, I feel like I did like them both because you know church. You go to church. You going to church Wednesday for prayer meeting. 
Thursday for choir rehearsal, Sunday, you know, you just, it's like church, 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 church. So you had no choice but to like that. And I I liked it anyway, because I just come from a spiritual family. The R&B side, I loved. Like I stayed in the mirror mimicking these artists. And I, I would get in the mirror and I would make up these uh, speeches <laughs> that, you know, I was at the awards thanking Michael and Janet. I hadn't even met these people <laughs> yet. I, you know, was like, thank you, Madonna, for letting me write records for you. I hadn't met none of them. And and I was constantly doing that in front of my doll babies. So it was something about that that I knew I was going to go in that direction. Were your parents supportive of your interest in music or did they laugh at you for... Uh you know, thinking this is what you were going to do? By the time I decided to become an artist, my mother and father had separated. My mother was trying to get me in the military. And I was like, I can't even walk from here to the car without getting tired. I know you don't expect me to go (laughs) in nobody's Navy or Army and be running for my dear life. You know, so they, my family, they didn't, take me serious because in Virginia at that time, artists wasn't going through Virginia like that. You know, maybe a show here or there. It it wasn't like it is now. So it was hard to believe that I'm going to go away and I'm going to be famous. But I have been saying that since I was a little girl. Like I remember in kindergarten, every Friday, the teacher would ask what we want to be. And I would listen to the kids say, I'm going to be a fireman. I'm going to be a policeman. I'm going to be a teacher and I'm going to be a doctor. And it come around to me and I'm like, I'm going to be a superstar. And a whole class would just bust out <laughs> laughing. And I never wavered. Every Friday, yeah. I said the same thing and they laughed every Friday. And I always wonder, do those kids remember me? Because I remember them. <laughs> I remember them yeah. well. But yeah, my family, they didn't think that that could happen. And they didn't think it was best for me because they, I think they thought that I would be naive and go out there and be wilding out and get on all kind of situations that I had no business. So they, they didn't think it was good for me at first. Tell me about growing up in Virginia. Just tell me about Virginia a little bit. Describe the place you grew up in, the area. Virginia. I grew up in Portsmouth, Virginia. And everybody knew everybody. Small town feeling? Yes, very small town. Like, you know, in New York, you may run into somebody and you may never see them ever again in life. Mm -hmm. In Virginia, you're going to, no matter whether you're from Virginia Beach, Hampton Roads, Newport News, uh, Suffolk, Norfolk, in those places, you're going to run into them again. And, you know, in Virginia, everybody is... um, just like family, you know, we, I, I remember a time where we used to, we can't do that now, but we used to go up to each other house and just knock on the screen door and be like, coming in, we didn't lock our doors. And, you know, we all played together and it, it just was a fun place growing up. Was it more like the country or was it more like the suburbs, would you say? Portsmouth was country. We had the dirt roads. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like we had the dirt roads, like mad woods. And yeah, we didn't see, we didn't see like paved roads like that in our, and where 
um, I used to stay in a place called Pewsville, and we didn't see that for a long time. Like our our roads were very rocky. Now where Tim and Pharrell is from, they were kind of yeah. like the upscale in Virginia Beach. So they might have had paid roads <laughs> in Portsmouth. Mm-hmm. Nah, we when coming up, we had a lot of dirt roads. I've only been to Virginia Beach one time, and that was to visit Teddy Riley in his studio back a while back. Oh, uh, the future. And, um, I think yeah. it was Future Records. Yes. Do you know I I love Teddy. When I tell you I yes. love Teddy and my group went to Teddy and sung for him like we we were so scared. We used to drive past the <laughs> studio all the time and we finally got up the nerve to go to his studio and sing. And it was uh, maybe like five of us and we sang and he was like. I see five of y'all, but I only hear two-part harmony. <laughs> it was like, no. And he didn't sign us. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> I like It was like starting all over again because we had spent so much time working up the nerve to finally go to his studio because we used to always drive past there, see all of these fly cars, and um, finally got in there. And he was like, I see five of y'all, but I only heard two par harmony. <laughs> how how old were you at that time? Do you remember? Um, we had to have been nineteen. Mm-hmm. How much did you record with the group? Oh, we did a whole album. Yeah. I used to be in a group called Sister, which mm-hmm. was signed to Jodeci. And mm-hmm. we were signed under Sylvia Rome. Oh, cool. And Sylvia Rome let Devante label go which mean we got dropped to any anybody that was under him and then she came back and signed me as a solo artist amazing yeah <laughs> we always me and her always joke about that it's like you dropped me and then you signed me <laughs> it all worked out it all worked out when the group ended was it clear that you were going to do solo as opposed to either continue with the group or put together a new group I had no clue I was going to ever go solo. So the story behind that is I was in the group. We got signed. We uh, went to a Jodeci show and we performed for Dalvin. And then Dalvin made us perform for KC. KC made us perform for JoJo. And (laughs) then we ended up performing for Devante. And so he said, hey, you know, I'm going to sign y'all. I'm going to fly y'all up to New York next week. We didn't believe him, but he really did. And so I signed with him and I kept telling him, hey, you know, I got this guy and he does all of our music. And I'm telling you, he is amazing. And his name is DJ Timmy Tim. And he was like. I don't care who he is. <laughs> he say, you know, me and and I'll be sure are going to do you all album. And I said, please, please, you know, bring him up here. Can I please bring him up here? And I begged and begged until he finally bought Tim. And then once Tim came, I said, hey, I got another friend. His name is Magoo. I promise he is so dope. <laughs> he was like, you're not going to. Bring everybody from Virginia. <laughs> so 
I got them up there. So I ended up leaving and I was the first one to to leave. And I didn't know where I was going. I didn't know what I was going to do. I had no plans or nothing. It was a scary thing because, you know, mind you, my family had already thought this was a bad idea. So I go mm-hmm. somewhere and now I'm back at the crib. I'm home. <laughs> and it's like, mm-hmm. uh, what are you doing here? I thought you was going away to be a star. And I'm like, no, I'm back. <laughs> but before any of that, um, Magoo introduced me to Temp. So I know I'm going backwards, but um, we were mm-hmm. in high school and Magoo, I always ask him, like, I don't even remember how I met Magoo, but <laughs> it's so crazy. He Magoo ended up giving me the name Misdemeanor because he said it was a crime for one to have as many talents as I had. And I stuck with that name and and he was just like, hey, I got this guy. And he he actually didn't introduce Tim to me for work. It was really for us to just hang out. And so Mm -hmm. I went to Tim's house and he was a DJ. He didn't even understand his gift that he had. And when I got there, he was just, you know, scratching and stuff. He was dope as a DJ, too. And then he started, he had a little Casio keyboard and he started playing on the Casio keyboard. And I don't know if you remember Casios back then, they had the little dog sounds. And this is where I believe all of Uh this sounds came from in the songs because the Casio had those like ruff, ruff, and me, just like animal sounds. And he found a genius way to make beats with that stuff in it. And he he really, at the time, wasn't calling himself a producer at all. And he one day he was just doing a, a beat on a Casio and I started rapping. And he was like, yo, that's crazy. And I remember all of us being in the room and just going, just rapping. I went from rapping to singing, rapping to singing. And he just kept doing beats and then Magoo would come in and we was having a cipher and, you know, we just, this was something that, this was our pastime. Yeah. At the time, we didn't think, oh, we're going to go on to make records. We just was having fun. And every day after school, me and Magoo would get together and we started going to Tim's house and it just started doing records. And we were recording from tape deck to tape deck. I don't know if you remember mm-hmm. how people recording mm-hmm. like that until the, the song sounded real fuzzy and muffled. But yeah, mm-hmm. we was recording like that. Like a pause tape? Yes. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so people people don't people don't don't under the artists these days, they'll they don't realize how good they got it. I say <laughs> I I have these reels in my house and I, I'm trying to get them converted over. And I say these artists don't even realize these reels, what what these reels was like cutting them and all this stuff is crazy. It's funny now looking back like it's easy now, but there was something about the limitations that we had back then that forced us to make more interesting things. You know, it just forced forced you to be creative. Yes, absolutely. Because it, it, when you think about the, those reels when you think about 
tape um recording from tape deck to tape deck. Like I I always wonder who came up with that. <laughs> Like who thought <laughs> to do that and to be able to, I was able to put harmonies that way without us even having a, a, a studio. It's so crazy. And you've worked with Tim from the beginning throughout your career, pretty much. Yes. Oh yeah. From that day, that first day of going to Tim's house and his dad hated when that doorbell would ring, because his dad, I think, drove trucks. And so he would be driving late at night and he would just be fussing like, y'all got to go. <laughs> y'all got to get out of here. <laughs> Making all that boom, bam. I got to drive. Like he, he would be fussing us out. But we we were so and we were so intrigued. It's It's so crazy. When I tell you, I think back to just the beginning, like the first song that I, I ever heard. Cause I heard Tim, I seen an interview with Tim not too long ago and he was like, you know, Missy taught me so much. And it's funny because I learned so much just from the first song I remember, Donna Summer, uh, Last Dance. And uh -huh. I said, at a young age, I was so intrigued at the structure of that record. And like, I was like, what made her start this slow? Yeah, it starts slow and then it turns into a dance song and you're not expecting it to turn into a dance song. Yeah, like, and and I and at a young age, that intrigued me that I hadn't heard a record do that. And till this day, that is is a structure that I always say was just so amazing to me. That was the first record that caught my attention. So I always gravitated to things that probably people wouldn't have paid attention to. But then when we, by the time I met Tim and we started getting into hip hop really crazy. Well, I was into hip hop before I met Tim because, you know, I'm quite sure he was into it too around junior high school. We were, you know, in the UTFO run DMC days. But by that time, we was in the public enemy when I met Tim and everything was Chuck D. <laughs> like, <laughs> and Flav, everything was, yeah, boy, <laughs> all day long. <laughs> and, and we would just sit and listen to the 808s and stuff that they would have in their records in, in the break beats that they would use in public enemy records. Mm -hmm. And we was just always so, so amazed. We then, you know, we were most definitely in a tribe. And I always used to say, Magoo, you sound just like Q-Tip. And he'd be like, man, everybody <laughs> tell me that. <laughs> <laughs> so those days really shaped us too. Just in, in the whole hip hop culture, like we were so heavy, 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 heavy into it. Tell me about Tim as a person. Tim, <laughs> Timberland. First, he was DJ Tummy Tim. So he was so quiet, a quiet genius. And what I always say about Tim and Pharrell just amazed me in two different ways. Tim, because he didn't play, he went off a of feeling when he created music. Somebody that went to school probably would technically say these 
sounds put together are wrong. This is not in the correct key. But he because he went off a feeling if it was right. <laughs> it was wrong, but it was yeah. right. And it was new. And it was new. Yes. And, you know, we really showed people how to rap and sing over a cadence that hadn't existed before us. Mm-hmm. That cadence was so off to people. I remember um, one in a million was hard to get played because they were saying a lot of people were saying a lot of the program directors were saying that they couldn't mix it in or blend it in with the record before it or after because of the rhythm of it. Yeah. And it was weird because although it was so slow, it still made you bounce <laughs> in the weirdest yeah. way. Like all the songs that we did just had this bounce, even if they were slow records. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the genius in that is that sometimes it's not just about just being technical because I've had people who are amazing technically, but the feeling is not there. And so that's why I think Tim was always so great at what he did because he went off a feeling. It felt right. It's amazing that there was a time that that was too unusual to, you know, to go on the radio when it had so much of an effect in all music that came after it. Tell me the story of that song from the beginning. First time you heard the beat. I, was out working with 702 and Tim called me and was like, hey, you know, we got this opportunity to do something on Aaliyah. Now, you know, we still knew. <laughs> like, I, nobody really knows who we are. So when me and Tim got together, I'm like, Tim, you know, what are we going to do? Because <laughs> she was already a superstar. So I'm like, Yo, let's just give her our old sound. Nobody never heard it. So mm-hmm. it'll be like a new sound. Cause we, that sound was probably four years old to us. Wow. Because we had been signed and no, you know, we, the, the stuff didn't come out. So we have mm-hmm. been on that wave, mm-hmm. that, that whole rhythm. And I said, Let's just give her that. So Tim was like, you sure? I'm like, yeah, like, dude, that, you know, I, we were still in a place of, of we didn't know what was hot or not. All we knew is what we did. Yeah. You know, this, this, this is hot. <laughs> not knowing yes. it was really hot, but it was hot to us because that's all we had been hearing. The song, the song was already written. Tell me what you played her. I mean, I played it for after it, I had demoed the vocals. So, cause that's mm-hmm. me at the beginning saying, love, mm-hmm. love you, baby. Me and Tim went in and, uh, recorded it. And then I played her, you know, the version with my, my vocals on it. And mm-hmm. she loved it and she got it immediately, yeah. which when I think about it, it just shows that she was aligned with us. Musically, anyway, because we had to show people how to sing and rap over something that, like I said, that hadn't existed before. People didn't know where to place this music. <laughs> they didn't know whether to go to the R&B and hip hop or to the pop. They didn't know where to place it. Mm-hmm. 
But she got it immediately. But that that actually wasn't the first record that she did. The first record she did was If Your Girl Only Knew. And even for her to get that record, and it went, we were only supposed to do one record on Aaliyah. And it went from one to two to three to four to five. Like, it just kept going. Wow. And she took a chance because she was Aaliyah already to the world. You know, she she had the chance to be able to work with any major producer uh, out there. And here we were, two young kids coming in with nothing really under our belts. And she just was like, I love what y'all doing. And she just kept recording each record that we would do. She'd be like, I want that one. I want that one. Yeah, I love that. And she did it. Typically, when you would write for someone else, would it typically happen like that? You would write it, do a demo of the of the whole song, and then present it to the artist? Or was it ever more collaborative than that? No, I always wrote it and always demoed it. And then I started, as time went on, I started to get, uh, I would write it and then I would get Jasmine or Tweet or somebody to, to demo for me. Mm-hmm. But actually, the one person I did have demo it early on on one song was, uh, Gina Thompson. Uh, she demoed I Care for You for, um, Aaliyah. But yeah, I, I would just go in there and, and write the songs and then demo it. And then I was not like, I didn't, I didn't consider myself like a singer, singer like that. I wasn't giving you no Whitney Houston notes. And so by me not being a singer, I would just kind of rap sing. And that's how, if you listen to one in a million, it's like rap singing because I wasn't a person who could do all of those runs and stuff like that. So I would just rap sing songs and um it just ended up being a new kind of rhythm too have you ever written a song for someone else have they not do it and then you end up doing it yourself has it ever happened no i've never written a song for someone else and then i ended up doing it i always ended up giving it to someone else yeah because for me i'm so critical on on myself like that's probably been the hardest thing for me is is once I do it for the artist, I have them in mind or an artist in mind and not me. Because I know when I do stuff for myself, it's always like some weird, <laughs> crazy stuff. So I know that those artists probably be like, oh, no, nah, you bugging. So I, I've never taken a record that I had for somebody else and, and use it on myself. Mm-mm. So when you say critical of yourself in that way, let's let's I want to understand it better. Is it that the song's not good enough for you or that it doesn't suit your personality? Or if, if there's a song that you think is great, but that it's not right for you, that you wrote, what's the thought process? Well, me as the artist, I do stuff so differently for myself that a lot of times it's so like out there. I couldn't imagine, you know, somebody else saying, uh, don't 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 <laughs> you know I could uh, uh, something I said and working I couldn't imagine somebody else saying some of the stuff that that I've said not to say they wouldn't but I just know like stuff that is more suitable for me so when I do those records they're more tamed down than what I would do for myself yeah 
because for myself, I'm taking a chance. I'm just like, you know, I'm going to say whatever, you know, I'm going to say she's a bitch. I'm going to say pussy don't fail me now <laughs> and sing yeah. it. And, you know, these artists will probably be like, now, Missy, I do many things, but that nah. So I'm just different as the artist. Yes. So you, your records tend to be more extreme and you could say lyrically harder or more challenging or crazier. It w- wouldn't feel right to give someone else a song like that expecting them to do it. Yes. Even to this day. Like it's yeah. a few artists that probably would do it just because I say, yo, I'm telling you it's going to go it's hot. But for the <laughs> most part, I'm taking more of a risk on myself. So those records that I do for other artists, once I do them, I just say, hey, this will go to somebody, but just not me. Mm-hmm. Who was the first artist that you or the first group of artists that you looked up to and and felt like, this is my inspiration. This is what I want to do. Who who were the people that got you to want to do it? Oh, so many artists. The gospel, I would have to say the Clark sisters. As far as R&B, Prince, Michael, Janet. When it comes to, you know, hip hop, I would go back to Roxanne, Queen Latifah, Light, Salt and Pepper, the reason I started rapping. LL. Big Daddy Kane, Public Enemy, Moni, all you know, all of the hip hop mothers and fathers of of this thing. Mm-hmm. I would say, to be honest, like the whole '90s for me, early '90s, really just like inspired me. But mm-hmm. the '80s also, because I feel like the '80s people were experimental with music. But Salt and Pepper is the reason that I started rapping. They are most definitely the reason. Tell me about your writing process. How does it start? What's the first thing that happens? My writing process, a lot of times I I could be riding down the street thinking of something. I listen to a lot of my friends' problems. Sometimes I'm just sitting and listening to a conversation and just pick up ideas uh, and and listening to what they they going through, and then I'll, I'll get a track, and I'll sometimes I'll already sing melodies in my now that I you know we can do that on our phones. I'll yeah. sing melodies on my um note thing on my phone before there's even a beat. Yes, mm-hmm. and then once I get a track, you know I I can adjust it to whatever track it is. Once I have the words and somewhat of a melody, I can adjust it to whatever track. Is it all about the words or could it be about the phrasing or the melody? Oh, sometimes it's depending on what the vibe is. Sometimes, you know, music, you may hear a track and I believe music speaks to you, you know, mm-hmm. um, and kind of tells you, you can hear a record and, and you may hear a track and say, oh, these sounds like sound like sexy chords and make you want to, you know, sing a song about sex or uh, uh, you may hear a song and it sounds like a um, motivational chords. I believe chords really do give you a place of, of feeling. But a lot of times when I'm just walking, sometimes I, I walk in the mountain and I'll just think of a, a melody. So the melody for me a lot of times 
be first. Cause I sometimes I'll get it, get on the mic and I'll just hum some stuff, and then the lyrics come. Mm-hmm. I honestly was like, I had to just do a album where I'm just humming a bunch of gibberish just just to show this is how most people, a lot of people create that way. Have you ever written a song with another person, like sitting together, looking at each other and writing a song together? Or it's always each person does their own thing? Last year was the first time in my whole career that I have collabed with a writer. I have written every last one of mine's, every last one of anybody else's I've done. Uh-huh. And at some point, you know, you just feel like, hey, it's good to just have a um, some freshness coming in. Uh-huh. You can't at 90 years old, I'm still talking about, I'm finna write... <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm finna write for Cardi B. <laughs> I'm finna write for 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 uh, uh, Beyonce. Like you got to know when when it's like okay, it's okay. It, you know, to bring in help because I've I've done this well another five years. It'll be thirty years. Yeah, twenty five is a good number. Twenty five is a great number. Yeah. And con- congratulations on the, the anniversary of the first solo album. That's an incredible milestone. Uh, and, and, and the funny thing, when I tell you that album, we did that album in two weeks. Mm-hmm. And we did it because I wanted to have my own record label so bad. And Sylvia Rohn said the only way that I'll give you a record label is if you give me an album, give me one album. And I was like, Tim, come on, let's get her this album so I can get this label. So we did it out of like hurrying up. Like I really wanted the label so bad. And it, it, it because at that time I had, remember I had left and went back home. So I didn't want to be an artist anymore. And wow. so we did it so quick. It was two weeks and I was like, here, and from that album, it went on to the next album, the next album, the next album. But initially, it was just like, I just wanted a label. So that's how that album came about. Fascinating. So in some ways, when you took a break in 2005, it's almost like you that's how you wanted it to be from the beginning. And then just other stuff happened. Yeah. <laughs> that's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. I love doing both but i'm very shy although it may not seem like it because i get to talking but i'm i'm very shy so so people have to understand like i started in a group so to go from a group to a solo artist Uh you have to mentally already know that that's what you wanted to do and that's not something that i came in this thing thinking so i ended up being a solo artist and everything you feel like everything is on you now you don't have you know, other people that you could talk to when things go crazy. And then, mm-hmm. you know, the second album became more stressful. The first album, I always tell people, you are at your most vulnerable. Like, you know, you don't care. Is You don't have nothing to compare it to. It's that second album 
that is going to give you that headache because if your first album is successful, then you're chasing trying to find the success of whatever record you put out that made that album go. You're trying to find that same style for that second album. And it just feel like, oh my God, like nothing is right. And I, I didn't even appreciate my second album until later and realized that actually that album was a masterpiece because we used a lot of theatrical loops and stuff in that album mixed with hip hop. But I didn't, I, I, at that time, it was just like, ooh, that was a, uh, that was a headache. That second album was a headache. Cause it's scary. You know, it is a thing called sophomore jinx. Yeah, for sure. I didn't want to be an artist, but now I'm in it. And so now I'm, I gotta make sure I don't fail the second album. So that was hard. But it worked, it worked out. <laughs> yeah. 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 It, it most definitely, most definitely worked out. But by the time my third album, we was having fun again. But I remember, the 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 third album uh we were finished well we, i didn't think we were finished and tim he was like i'm telling you this album is solid i was like no something is missing and he was like man he was so he was so mad at me because i said no something is missing so i said just see what else you got in the keyboard so he got on the asr 10 and he started going down a thing and he hit a hit one of the things and it was like dun, 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 dun. and I'm like, yo, that was it. And he was like, what? Cause now he going so fast up and down the keyboard, he can't find it no more. So now he even more <laughs> mad. Cause I'm like, yo, I'm telling you, I know what I heard. And so he hitting the keyboard all hard because he ready to go. Like he's like, what? It ain't in here. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so he finally hits it again. And I'm like, that. And I'm like, that joint is crazy. So when I rapped on it, it was only that sound and a kick. Wow. Because that's how Tim, a lot of times we would do stuff. He would, you know, it would just be like one sound and a kick. And then after I finished rapping, he would go and place all the other things around Mm -hmm. it. And so that's where you got all the spacey noise and stuff. So good. That was a really common practice in the early days of hip hop to leave a really long instrumental at the end so that other people could rap over it themselves. Yeah. And, you know, just me sitting there listening actually to it just speaks to the genius in in Timbaland, too, again, is the fact that he would make hip hop those records. He would treat them like R&B records. If you really like when you get a chance to go back and listen, he was placing strings in different sounds. He was having a separation. It wasn't just a flat beat straight through. So he would add different sounds like every four bars. He would put in another sound. When the hooks came, it would be strings. And he would do that to a lot of his records. Absolutely. They never get boring. You never just get used to the groove. It always feels like, even if you're not paying attention, like it really became clear after the vocals, all the changes that were going on in the music, because they're subtle. You know, they don't make you listen to them, but they have an effect on your subconscious that it feels like it's always evolving. It's always new. Yeah, especially when, yeah, when you get to that that end and you see how he starts to uh, 
break it down. That's I always say that too in, in that record. Um, is that your chick? He does that heavily in there too. But most of the records he he did that. So when just listening now, because I never like listened to the end, made me just realize he he treated those records like uh you would treat uh R and B records. Mm-hmm. Would you say that spirituality plays a role in your music? Oh, spirituality plays a role in Missy, period. <laughs> in this industry, if I didn't have some kind of spiritual connection, I don't know how I could have made it. You know, in this in this industry, a lot of artists come in uh, just thinking it's going to be you're going to make a lot of money. You're going to be famous. You know, you're going to be hot forever in all of these different things. You know, that's that's what you come in thinking. And then you realize, oh, you've been doped. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I always tell people you will you you won't be hot forever. You can always have respect, though, because it'll come a time where even the hottest of the hottest won't be sitting at the top of the charts anymore, but you, the impact and respect will always be there. But spiritually, you have to have some, you know, for me, I feel like I had to have some kind of connection because when those times come of those ups and downs like that, you have to be able to, you know, I I come from a praying family. So being that I I feel like God going to work it out. If I didn't have that, I don't know how I would be able to manage because there has been way ups and then there has been way downs. And that's a, a lot, especially if you're coming from way up, you know, and, and a lot of artists, people don't prepare artists for that. And and that's, you know, a lot of times where you may get a lot of artists deal with uh, mental health issues because they came in and, and nobody prepared them for those different ups and downs. Regardless of what's hot and what's not hot and uh, or even doing it professionally, do you feel like on any given day you could write a song that you would love? You could always do that. Is that something that you feel confident in or is it a moving target, would you say? Oh, I feel like I'm going to always make some joints that I love. <laughs> That's, you know, yeah. I always feel like that, that, that I haven't wavered from. Now, whether the people feel the same is a whole nother, you know, you just don't know. That's but, their problem. <laughs> they just might not know. Exactly. Yeah. You know, you don't know what the people will, will feel, but I always say I'd rather do something that I believe in and if it don't work then I can still sleep good opposed to do something mm-hmm. that let's say if the label say hey this the one and I don't feel like that and then it don't work and I'm kicking myself in the ass for the rest of my life so you know mm-hmm. a lot of times if I do something and if it don't work I just be like hey maybe this you know I do understand and not to be bragging but some people are ahead and I do understand that that some things may be ahead. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's part of what makes you you and that's why you're in the role that you're in and it's why you you were very early in the movement and um you just you felt it early. 
Yeah. I'm sure not everybody felt it at the time that you felt it. Oh, absolutely not. I remember like when I did She's a Bitch and I remember Puff hitting me like, Money, what are you doing? <laughs> when he seen that bald head, he was like, What yo money, what are you doing? <laughs> like so, <laughs> so, so you know, at that time we didn't even think about like like the way we are now, we're probably more open to just playing stuff and seeing what people think. We didn't do that then. We came in saying, okay, this is going to be the first single. And then we're going to come with this. We yeah. we wasn't playing it for somebody to tell us if it was hot or not. We was playing it because we thought it was hot. Exactly. And as time went on, your confidence can either build or, you know, it could stagger or it could just go to nothing. And I think as time went on, we we probably started to ask people. But then I got to a point that I'm just like, nah, I just want to do music that feels good to me. And I've, Absolutely. I've done, a, you know, just like you, you are legendary, legendary. At this point, you you probably doing it like I'm just having fun. There was a time where you may have felt like you was concentrating on making this kind of music or timeless. So you, you're not even thinking like that now. Mm-hmm. You're like, I'd improve myself. What? What? I'm having fun. I'm going to take two spoons and hit on this trash can and throw this out because it feel good to me right now. While I'm, yeah. you, you, you have proven yourself time and time again. And what's the use of doing music if you can't have fun with it? Absolutely. I've always tried to make music that I like and never question what anyone else is going to think because I can't, I can't imagine what anyone else is going to think. And at least if I'm true to what I like, at least I know some one person likes it. You know, it's better than making something that maybe nobody likes. Like I'm making the thing that I like and I care about it. That's all I could do. Absolutely. I said, just think if there was one person in the room, if if, I always say Michael and Quincy or whoever else was in that room when they were creating Thriller, Mm -hmm. they all had to be aligned in the same space. Because if one person had been like, what? It's close to midnight. Something evil is What kind of song is this? It could have threw them all the way off and made them trash that record. But they was all aligned in that room where they had to be like, visually, they was in the same place. I see it. I hear it. This going to be huge. And those are the type of people that I try to, you know, keep around. Not just yes ma'am people you know if something is truly whack i want my friends to be like yo absolutely that's whack absolutely (laughs) otherwise you you're living in a world of not reality like you have no idea it's like i want to make something that i like and if someone else doesn't like it it's cool but i want to know if they don't like it it's just so i understand the world you know right right but yeah i mean you are such a legend and people dream to get to that place and you have an impeccable ear so i know that you know <laughs> when when you have an ear like that you would have to be 120 for anybody to be like nah if you was to say even at 90 you'd be like nah that ain't it i'm gonna believe it <laughs> 
But I feel I feel like you're exactly the same. We've both been doing it long enough where we, you know, it's like it's obvious we know what we're doing. It's okay. Yeah, yeah. I most definitely probably had a few producers mad at me when I'd be like, nah, that ain't it. <laughs> Good. That means you that means you care and you're honest, you know, like that's your that's part of the job too. It's not just going along with it. Yeah. You know, especially in, in this time when you've been around for so long, though, but then you you may get some young, younger ones that come in and be like, nah, you don't know what you're talking about. This I'm telling you this, this what everybody listened to. And that's the that's the great thing about I think what we have done is we created something in yourself that hadn't been done. And and so you are in a position to be able to to say that because you wasn't following what everybody else was doing. Mm -hmm. And if you can teach any upcoming producers like, hey, you know, you stand out because at the end of the day, you don't want it to be five of you's because they Mm -hmm. if, if you got five of you's, then. Most of the time, the label gonna go with the cheapest one anyway. So you, you better hope you the cheap one, because otherwise you're not gonna be picked. Like you, it, it's gonna be easy for them to go with the one that is you know popping right now. So you better mm-hmm. off just trying to do something that will be game changing. And game changing, you don't get a lot of those. Like you can you can count those. It ain't, ain't a lot of game changers. It's true. Thank you so much for speaking to me. This was beautiful. I thank you. And hopefully we will see each other. But it's been fun. And I appreciate you. Just know that you are legendary and will continue to be. And it was an honor speaking to you. The honor is all mine. Thank you so much. And we speak soon, and hopefully I get to see you and give you a big hug and thank you in person. Yes. Well, you enjoy yourself and be safe out there. Thanks to Missy Elliott for talking through her career with Rick and sharing insight into her creative process. You can hear all of the songs mentioned in this episode, along with the rest of her now 25-year-old album, Super Duper Fly, on a playlist at brokenrecordpodcast.com. Next week, we kick off a month-long slate of interviews Rick Rubin did with the Red Hot Chili Peppers to commemorate the release of their newest album, Unlimited Love. This is the Peppers like you've never heard them before, and trust me, you don't want to miss it. The first episode comes out Friday, April 1st, the same day as the album. You can follow us on Twitter at Broken Record. Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Ben Tolliday, Eric Sandler, and Jennifer Sanchez. Our executive producer is Mia LaBelle. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries. And if you like the show, please remember to share, rate, and review us on your podcast app. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. That was a preview of Broken Record from our friends at Pushkin Industries. Hear more inspiring artists on Broken Record, available wherever you listen to podcasts.